I'm the Reverend Brianne Swan, and this is Sermons from the East End for Tuesday, February 27th, 2024. Hello and welcome to this week's sermon, where we look at an uncomfortable exchange between Jesus and Peter and reflect on what it means when Jesus asks his disciples, and perhaps us, to take up the cross. This is a complicated call. So many of Jesus' calls and instructions are when they've been warped and corrupted by Christianity's enmeshment with empire. Lent is the perfect season to be wrestling with all of this. But like so many of these calls, some, like this one that have been used to harm and gaslight, we only need to dig a little bit below the surface to understand just how subversive Jesus' journey towards the cross actually is. Mark, chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all of this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. As we get started, it might be helpful for me to create a map for you, a metaphorical you-are-here diagram for where we are in Mark's gospel and Jesus's narrative, because we have popped around a little bit over the last few weeks. Last week, we were at the beginning. Jesus has just been baptized and immediately goes into the wilderness where he is tempted by Satan, waited on by wild beasts and angels. And the week before that, if you attend worship with a congregation who follows the Revised Common Lectionary, we jumped ahead nine chapters to the Transfiguration. Today we find ourselves immediately before the Transfiguration, and it is a turning point for the whole story. 
Jesus and his followers are walking along through Caesarea Philippi, a place named not for one, but actually two powerful Roman leaders. And Jesus is asking his disciples, Who are people saying that I am? John the Baptist, say some. Elijah, say others. Then he asks Peter, Who do you say that I am? Now, I love Peter. He's definitely my favorite disciple, mostly because he's always getting it wrong. Always getting it wrong and sometimes more wrong than other times. I see myself in him a lot. But right now, at least at first, Peter gets it right. He says, you are the Messiah. Jesus is very pleased with Peter. So Peter is in. He's the right-hand man and would seemingly hold some sort of power or influence within the Jesus movement, which always sat uncomfortably at the edges of a more violent Zionist faction. But then, quite openly, Jesus starts to explain to the disciples that he, their Messiah and their friend, will need to suffer and die in order to fulfill his purpose within the world. And yeah, Peter is understandably upset. I mean, things had been going so well. There had been healings and teachings, feedings and other miracles. Sure, there were some grumpy religious leaders, but nothing they couldn't handle. And despite Jesus telling his friends over and over again not to tell anybody anything, word is spreading far and wide about this miraculous man. Could he be the one? The one to vanquish their oppressors? The one to free his people? This is not the way Peter envisioned this conversation moving. Nothing in the disciples' experience of the world would have prepared them for the idea that Israel's divine champion would need to violently and shamefully suffer. Their Messiah was supposed to come out triumphant. Their Messiah was supposed to kick butt like a Quentin Tarantino film. Jesus' journey towards his execution on a cross, the passion story, is a scandal and is a powerful example of truth, capital T truth, exposing the lie of redemptive violence that evil will ever, ever be overcome with brutality and intimidation. And let's be honest, the idea of redemptive violence has become a pillar of our society and how it functions. It is neither new nor old. It is the lie that there will ever be a war to end all wars. It is the lie in proclaiming that justice has been served when the state kills a convicted man 20 years after the fact by sending a chemical cocktail through his veins. 
It is the lie of thinking that in the wake of a school shooting, the best answer is to arm teachers and show them how to shoot first. Last year, I took a course through the Intercommunity Justice and Peace Center about nonviolent resistance. In one of the lectures, our leader quoted that there has never been a violent overthrow of a government that has not led to more violence. And then more violence. And I remember hearing that and thinking, surely that can't be true. And I also thought about German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer who struggled with whether it was worse to be evil or to do evil things as he discerned and worked through his involvement in an assassination attempt against Hitler. And then this week I was considering ongoing cycles of war and violent conflict. As an example what we see in Israel and Palestine. Now that conflict is far too long and too complicated to fully, adequately, and justly examine in this time. But simplistically, very, very simplistically, the violence of the Shoah, leading to the violence of displacement, leading to the violence of civilian deaths and kidnappings, leading to the violence of retaliation against more civilians, children, hospitals. It is never going to end. Violence begets violence all the time. Every time. But the resistance efforts that have made lasting and changing impact were ones based in active, nonviolent resistance. Now, it doesn't mean violence wasn't enacted upon the resistors. An easy link to make during Black History Month is the civil rights resistance that followed Martin Luther King. Bodies beaten and broken but they were not passive. The resistance was active. It was risky, but it was non-violent. And we see this too in Israel. Before the October 7th attacks, there have been non-violent resistance movements of the Jewish diaspora and Israeli citizens against their own government for a long, long time. And I sometimes wonder if we, and I'm not exactly sure who that we is, we in this congregation, we in the United Church of Canada, in Canada, or perhaps simply as global citizens, if we couldn't be doing more to support those efforts, because something needs to change, something needs to shift, something needs to move. Each of the gospel writers makes clear that Jesus did not need to subject himself to the brutal, shameful, and scandalous death of the cross. And yes, it was a scandal. In Matthew's version of this story, Jesus not only refers to Peter as Satan, but as a stumbling block in Greek scandalon, and the root of our English word scandal. Jesus says, you are setting your mind not on divine things, 
but human things. Because Jesus gets it. The humanness of Jesus gets it. We have a very human instinct for fight or flight. And Jesus scandalously chooses neither. Jesus offers another way. But it is hard and it is brutal and he is tempted. Satan is, after all, the great tempter. This passage is often read as Jesus casting Peter away in anger. Get behind me, Satan. But what is translated as get behind is the Greek phrase opisomau. Another spot in the Gospels where we see opisomau is when Jesus is going to Peter, Andrew, James, and John as they're fishing and asking them, inviting them actually to follow him. Get behind, or to follow, to be back in line, and to have his back. Rather than Jesus being angry, I wonder about Jesus making a desperate plea to Peter. Please, do not tempt me. Do not make it even harder for me to see this through. Please do not make it even more difficult for me to keep my mind on the divine and not the human. Believe me, I do not want to die. But Jesus knows what is coming. This is the turning point in Mark, and the disciples are just beginning to figure out what this journey is going to cost them. They have been on a journey of change with Jesus, and that is going to have some consequences. Anytime truth threatens power, power will kill truth. Anytime God threatens earthly power, that power will try to kill God. That is not only true in Scripture, it is the case in this world right now. Jesus says that to follow him means to struggle and to suffer, to take up the cross. Not in the way this phrase has been used to further marginalize vulnerable people, This is not an encouragement for passivity. Again, there is nothing passive about the passion. The very act of Jesus allowing his execution to take place is an act of defiance. And how we think about this execution, the crucifixion, is important. Because if, for example, the whole purpose of Jesus' life was to suffer and die on a cross, thereby taking the sins of the world, my sin, and your sin too, upon him so that we could once again be reconciled with God. If that's the point, then the resurrection is kind of superfluous. However, If Jesus' scandalous execution was the inevitable result of truth and good resisting evil, 
of imperial power being threatened, then the resurrection is the needed promise that death is never the final word. That truth, capital T truth, will always prevail in the end. It is the hope that keeps movements of resistance going, that despite everything the world, that the oppressors try to throw down, nothing, nothing can overcome God's will for their people in the end. Jesus knows that there is no such thing as redemptive violence. What Jesus is offering is a radically different way of relating to power and relating to community. It is a full 180-degree change of the narrative. It is the end to scapegoating, the end to a community's pettiness and bickering over who is the greatest and who should hold the power. It is the end of answering violence with more of the same. The end of might is right. The end of greatness being defined by what one has rather than what one has given. Of being defined by where we come from rather than what we stand for. Scapegoating, resentment, pettiness, violence, it ends here. It all ends here. But I can also hear Jesus' voice saying, Remember, it begins here too. Amen. Will we ever rise? Will we ever rise above the fear? Can we learn to see the need? Can we share humanity? I can see another day come. Broken people we can be.
ever rise East End United Regional Ministry is committed to supporting our neighbours throughout the East End of Toronto. We run a weekly food bank market out of our Glen Roads campus on Gerrard Street, as well as out of the cold from our Eastminster campus on Danforth Avenue. We actively support refugees and asylum seekers, and are public, intentional and explicit of our affirmation and advocacy for two-spirited and LGBTQIA peoples. We gather for worship on-site and online Sunday mornings at our Eastminster campus and Thursday evenings at our Glen Roads campus. We are a community working to figure out how to embody the words of Cornell West who said justice is what love looks like in public. We don't always get it right, but we are committed to working for progress even as we acknowledge that we are a work in progress. If any of this sounds interesting, we would love to meet you. Feel free to send me, Reverend Brianne, an email, bswan, B-S-W-A-N, at eastendunited.ca. I would love to connect over coffee, either in person or online. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We will be back next week with a very familiar story about Jesus arriving at the temple and overthrowing the tables of the money changers. But until then, take care of yourselves and each other. And may God bless you. East End United Regional Ministry is an affirming community of faith within the United Church of Canada. You can learn more about our community, including our many outreach programs, by going to www.eastendunited.ca.